Number five. Our first topic for discussion is what lines of toys we use to complement our GI Joes. Like, what did we use in addition to GI Joe? Yeah, there's so much Whoa. we can talk about. There's just tons. We'll just keep talking about it for half the show, and then, and then, what's in the second half? Our controversial topic for this episode is any um, self-respecting fanboy should be able to look at what they love and be able to see the bad sides of it just as much as the good sides. And the one thing that we're going to tackle is Larry Harmer. <laughs> Larry Harmer is the most important name in G.I. Joe. There can be no disputing that. He came up with the concept. He was in close dialogue with Hasbro during the in- in- inception of G.I. Joe. He wrote most of the file cards. Well, he wrote a lot of the file cards. It's now anybody's game as to how many he actually penned himself and how many were Hasbro employees. Anyway, I'm getting off the topic. <laughs> Jojo. Yeah, that would get me back. Why don't we jump in with what you like to use to complement your G.I. Joe action figures, Paul? I thought you would never ask. <laughs> okay, there are two phases to this, as I'm sure a lot of fans are going to find familiarity here, but when I was a kid, there was obviously a lot more toys out there than just G.I. Joe, although G.I. Joe was like the coolest in my eyes at least. But I only had like probably nine or ten at the time, and I had already acquired my Warthog, which is a, an amazing vehicle in and in itself. But sometimes you can't get a Joe to shoot another Joe, and you know, there's only so many times you can make Stalker or Snake Eyes a bad guy and whatnot. So, Paul, I've got to stop you right there. Did you not have any Cobra figures? Whatsoever. Dude, I had like two Cobra figures. I probably had, I can't even remember exactly which Cobra I had, but I certainly didn't have anybody like that was notable. You know, nobody cool like Raptor or anything. Um, <laughs> I'll do your taxes. I'll do your taxes real hard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I didn't have any like serious Cobra Vipers. And also, because I used to love figures with helmets, and the Cobras predominantly had helmets, I think they ended up being like my good guys. Not Night Viper, but... The Annihilator was like my ultimate ninja, even though he was orange. But he so had such a I cool to... gun. How and his head yeah. sculpt was so interesting and different as well. Yeah, I think I liked him as one of my favorites too. Huh. Yeah. Like yeah. That was that... so cool. With that helicopter backpack. Awesome. I know, right? I mean, safety standards, what are those? You know? <laughs> I always felt like he had to be some kind of an alien. Because to fit a human head into that wicked, weird-shaped helmet would have just been too much of a stretch of the imagination. I mean, he had this, like... Snouts, almost. Yeah, but the thing is, like, as a kid, I used to think anything with a helmet as well was either a ninja or a ninja robot. So, <laughs> you know, two things kids those, love: ninjas and robots, and ninja robots. <laughs> I know two words that can make any movie title suck, but they were awesome. <laughs> so at the time, I had some He-Man toys. I had um, some Brave Star stuff. I actually distinctly remember taking uh, Twenty Twenty. And he was this big robot Trojan horse. His leg had been broken at the time, but he was something my Joes used to kill. And uh, <laughs> They killed a horse. That's, that's yeah. great, Paul. A disabled horse on top of that. <laughs> disabled robot horse, get it right. <laughs> and then I had other stuff. I mean, I had Ninja Turtles. I had the Ninja Turtles skateboard, uh, which was really cool. I had a lot of fun like integrating that as some kind of weird rocket turbine sled thing, although it could have passed for a really good hovercraft now that I think about it, but anyway. <laughs> I'm going to stop um, you there, I mean, I personally, even as a youngster, I was a real slave to scale. I could not put Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and G.I. Joe in the same game. It, it just didn't make any sense that there'd be these freaky large reptile creatures. My 
opponents for Joe's need to be Joe scale. So I see. I had that problem as well, but then I got to a point and I thought, if it, yeah, characters like Rocksteady and Bebop were like these ultimate mutant monsters that they had to kill. And Transformers. I used to integrate Transformers into my play all the time. And when I say Transformers, I'm using the term quite liberally. Optimus Prime <laughs> was <laughs> like a super robot whose legs couldn't move, but he was awesome. As a villain. As a villain, sometimes he, he was reprogrammed. Um, I think Snake Eyes was also a hacker in my, my childhood. He like used computer skills to, to turn Optimus into a good guy. And, you know, little things like that. I mean, I had a lot of weird robot toys when I was a kid because I have quite a fascination with Mecha. And I had these cool, like, Chinese knockoffs of popular robot lines. Not necessarily Transformers, but, like, guys that would... One would transform into a car kind of thing, and the other one was a motorbike, but you put them together. I had, um... I totally had that. The car was red and the motorbike was blue, right? Yeah, it's that one. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's wow. that one. One and, and a half was... thousand kilometers away, we had the same toy. No, I know, um... right? How cool is that stuff? Yeah, the I local importers me. must have just, like maxed out on that particular generic transforming robot toy because it was pretty crap really it was you had to use additional parts to give the red robot arms like you had yes. to oh, no man that's not a transformer yeah well that's why I said it's not a transformer but then also I used to like uh, use ring raiders and um, other like out of scale jets to sort of be my zoomed out dogfight jets because I never had any cover or Joe um Air Force craft. Uh, I used to use the Micro Machines play sets as well because I didn't have a flag. I didn't know a flag existed. But my um, aircraft, Micro Machine aircraft carrier was a sort of out of scale G.I. Joe base. Nice. Which I, and then, yeah, and then we get to the modern era of it where, you know, there's that very popular line, the Power Team Elite. Steve helped me get into it quite a bit because I always used to see them. You always used to think that would be a really cool thing to, to add to my uh, G.I. Joes if I had G.I. Joes. But I didn't have any G.I. Joe's at the time, so I never felt the urge to go and buy that really cool jet I saw in the pick and pay or whatever. So here I am sitting with a Hummer and a really cool Blackhawk. Tip of the iceberg, my friend. Tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. They put out some great aircraft as well. An F-18 Hornet. They put out the Sukhoi. Is it the Flanker? Oh, one of my favorite planes. Yep. They did a bang-up job on the A-10. And they're so cheap too, comparatively, <laughs> yeah, to other to other brands, and they're just so good. So well, one good thing I have to say, which has come to light recently, is there's a, a vehicle from the core. It's a jeep, and there's also like a weird submarine speedboat thing. It's got an enclosed canopy. I recently picked them up for 150. Steve was actually with me when he was up here in Joburg, and I've got the new vamp or the GI Joe 4x4, and. I, I think that that core vehicle is a little bit cooler than that vamp in a lot of ways. For starters, I paid 150 rand for it, but it's 400 rand. And to get the value that I'm getting out of the core vehicle that I'm getting, I really think it's a fantastic vehicle. And it's something that's definitely found its way into my G.I. Joe posing ritual, where I take G.I. Joe's and put them in vehicles that I don't play with them at all. Yeah. Ooh, heaven forbid. <laughs> Did you do something about the bright sleeve? Colored neon parts, I believe there's some neon green. Yes, I green. took them off. <laughs> and then uh, anything that's still on the vehicle, I've painted. Hey, bravo. A project yeah. uh, that you've actually completed, Paul. <laughs> yes, I also got a, a really, I got a Captain America funny buggy thing. <laughs> but when I saw it, I couldn't see that it was in a Captain America vehicle. I just saw Thunder Machine. Uh. And, and that is my current project, is turning that into a Thunder Machine. Now that I actually have a Thrasher to drive the bad boy. It's all, it's all come together now. Yes, and sadly, yes. the vintage Thunder Machine does not work well with the modern era G.I. Joes. As I've heard, I still have not seen it, but you will show me one day, I'm sure. Ah, show yourself, man. Get a Thunder Machine. It's worthwhile, let me tell you. Those things are beautiful. But they do seem a bit like they come from a different toy line altogether. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just something about the Thunder Machine which is just so off the wall. Even That's, for Cobra, yeah. Well, it's the Dreadnought's vehicle, but, you know, there's an irony that I've never really wrapped my head around with the Dreadnoughts. They had a tricycle, they used ferrets, <laughs> they had the Thunder Machine, but they never once gave them a bike. And I'm not counting, I think it was a Sears exclusive, the Dreadnought Ground Assault, 
which You're is basically so right. a repurposed Ram, Rapid Assault motorcycle. Yeah. They don't have a bike. Well. I mean, you've got to look at Maesto or Hot Wheels or some other brand of toys. That is 1 to 18 scale, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like the, the little um, dirt bike that I got for Zartan. It's got a skull on the side. And Hot Wheels, incidentally, has got a really, really cool line of bikes at the moment. They're like American-style choppers. And they look really great with the dreadnoughts. Sure. Oh, and they have yeah. rubber tires, die-cost metal. They have a nice heft to them. But still, I mean, Hasbro didn't ever deliver. They gave you all these biker characters and pirates and chicks with pink hair. <laughs> but, <Hey. laughs> you know, we were a little bit short on two-wheelers. Yeah, you're right. Of course, I'm and, right, and Paul. But, but the core, <laughs> at the time, in the early 90s, the core had these uh, single-pressed motorbikes that came out of that their line. Oh, yeah, I, I, those. you recall them? They were like, yeah, they were like dirt bikes, weren't they? The first mold they pressed was like a street bike. Yeah. Yes, I had a few of those. And they, they had this very Dreadnought-esque looking character who I think came packaged with a like a tricycle, like a recli- like a recliner bike, I think, a, what are they called? With a rest- razor blade wheel. It's yes. like some kind of buzzsaw wheel. <laughs> totally. Totally, and he looked a bit like Zartan version 2 from the Ninja Force. Yes, anyway. Yeah, I remember that. He had like a three-tier cha- chainsaw or something, didn't he? And Yes, yes, exactly. And yet he was, was cool. a, he was a good guy. Like, all of the core were good guys. Yeah, they had no bad guys. Weird. Well, that's the line that Joe could have been, I guess, if someone hadn't said in that one early meeting with Hasbro, hey, man, these guys need someone to fight. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think and it goes without saying that the core delivered in certain ways that G.I. Oh, Joe did. Yeah. They, they totally bridged the gap. Like, they tidied us over. When G.I. Joe dried up, mm. the core was still producing things, and, and they actually produced a pretty decent Hummer at a time where the best thing we had gotten before that was the G.I. Joe Hammer. But that thing oh, was yeah. a bit over-designed, if you, if you take my meaning. It just had too many guns and too many missiles, and and it didn't have any glass or transparent plastic, whereas the core Hummer did. So that became my number one armored car, or G.I. Joe Jeep. Yeah, I think core is always very complementary to G.I. Joe. So obviously, you know, they're G.I. Joe Ripple. Yeah, but I think the success of their line was that you could integrate their products with the Joe line. Like, if your mom wanted to surprise you with an action figure, mm. she could, like, look at getting you a really cool G.I. Joe or a really well-priced core figure, which she got you. She got you a core figure. And didn't they always package them in, like, packs of, like, 12 originally? Uh, yes. Like, huge pack. You could get the whole collection. And then no. you don't have to buy any and more like, for like forever. And they had like the crazy color variants. Like you sometimes got a gray ninja and then sometimes you got like a red ninja. And <laughs> All the same mold. <laughs> well, considering the fact that they stuck with the same core of characters, excuse the pun, right through the 80s and into the early 90s before they started their T-Crotch explosion mm. of new characters, because they had the same characters, they just had to recolor them every time. It really is an example of what Joe could have been if the stakes had been lower, if the exposure had been lower, if it had been a sort of a dumbed-down, poor man's version. If it didn't get a comic book series, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. You say that. When I was working in the comic shop, we got a promo for the a core comic very recently in the last two years. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually got the promo here sitting in one of my comic boxes. Was it and aimed primarily at kids? I mean, it didn't... No, it it was trying to be serious. It actually had a very cool art style. You know that art style they use on the new packaging for the core? God, yes. we're talking about the core on a G.I. Joe podcast, but <laughs> it had that artwork in the book. It was actually pretty cool. It's just, I read it, and it didn't really, like, grab me, but maybe that's just because I'm very much into Joe. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, and yeah. All, you'll always come back to a lower grade of quality with the core, and it, it becomes a bit of a roadblock. <laughs> Another pun. <laughs> I mean, for instance, they've got a website where I saw some of this artwork that you're talking about, and the yeah. website's kind of been unfinished and under construction for about five years. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's not a great deal moving on that product. It's kind of just standing still, and they're, they're just putting out the same sculpts in different colors. And, yeah, the vehicles are sadly really subpar these days. I mean, they've got, okay. like, an undersized jet pod mm-hmm. and a really lame-looking... But sadly, yeah, that, that stuff is kind of backslid a bit. Speaking of the vehicle, sorry, just before we move forward, um, you mentioned a Jeep kind of vehicle that came through core earlier. Yes. Uh, you were just 
Yeah, it was that that yellow one. It was like a yellow jeep. Even before that, yeah, they put up oh, those okay. yellow jeeps, which I think, I mean, I've seen, I've seen them before at military parades in this part of the world, based on a French armored car. But yeah. no, the, the Corps actually put out a Humvee. Oh, sweet. Yeah, they called it the ATK vehicle, attack four by four something. As long as it doesn't go ATKs. Or 60 miles per hour. <laughs> well, they're going to outrun us. And, and Rob, and yourself, man, what did you, like, you see integrate quite a bit? Well, I mean, I never really had much of a problem with scaling. So, like, all my toys would play with each other. Yeah, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Thundercats and He-Man. I think it's only after I met Steve and he introduced me to the Bionic 6 that I sort of realized, oh, oh there are other lines where they're the same size and actually you can't have He-Man playing with Snake Eyes. They're not compatible somehow. So you sort of I'm sorry, limited Rob. my imagination to a certain degree. I corrupted you. <laughs> but they also have cool vehicles. I mean, I, I also remember having one or two Bionic 6 vehicles, but I mean, just mainly the little dune buggy sort of thing. The, I had the, the quad bike. Yo, yes, I yeah, the quad bike, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Although, like, Steve had a bunch more. He had the, 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 the bike that it also became almost like a quad bike, wasn't it? Yeah, the back wheel split, so it became a tricycle. tricycle yeah. <laughs> and you actually had the Bionic yeah. 6 truck. I mean, the, 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 the mules van. Yes. Those were fun times. If we didn't have a bunch of other Joe vehicles, we would play with those. Anything goes. Look, I think we can all safely say Joe would have probably trumped everything if Joe weren't such slim pickings. Joe yeah. was kind of the premium toy line, and yeah. everything else was used to supplement in lieu of G.I. Joe. Yeah, I so think that's true. So, I didn't have a G.I. Joe troop transport, so I used a Bionic 6 van or Playmobil. We had a Playmobil van lying around, probably from my older siblings. That could accommodate a fair number of G.I. Joes. In fact, with a bit of suspension of disbelief, that became the interior of a, a transport helicopter. Yes. And it would shuttle oh, cool. our Joes around. We would just, like, use torchlight to light the interior and kind of imagine <laughs> that we were situating our figures inside the belly of a transport helicopter as opposed to a flying bus. Star Wars figures were the, I suppose, targets or civilians. Yeah, they were the are... most accessible, similar-sized toys, I think. Yeah, even more so than Bionic 6. They would be the non-combatants that needed to populate this world. Like, if there was a hostage situation, we'd need... Yeah, Luke Skywalker was always the hostage. Totally. Or Leia. Or Leia. Leia. <laughs> yeah, Leia. The monkey face Leia. She was uh, often used hostage. And Palpatine as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Palpatine figure, go you. Yeah, it was a bit of a brick, but yeah, the, the Emperor was a figure. But also the, the Chancellor Palpatine. Yes. From the, the <laughs> from prequels. Episode yeah. 1, yeah. But I mean, like, Palpatine as a figure just looks like... I mean, how did that go down? It's like... Here's a guy, uh, you're at the hospice. Oh, they're taking over the hospice. Oh, no. Wait a minute. You look really suspicious. <laughs> what's with, going what's down? with the going eyes? Nothing. I'm just really old. But the electric <laughs> force bolt. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of gunning for the new Ninja Turtle sewer playset. I don't know if you guys are with me on this, but it's really awesome. I haven't seen anything from the new Ninja Turtles toys. I will send you a link. I mean, since Steve got... Oh, the Necker TNMTs. They are amazing. I don't think it can get any better. They could get better scale. <laughs> I want them to be able to interact with my Joes. Three-inch turtles. The new figures are four-inch figures. That's too big. So. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles need to be, like, shorty. No, but look in the films. They were always bigger. I mean, even in the animated movie, they were a bit bigger. And in the cartoons, like, they were always bigger. They are slightly bigger than normal people. Not in my universe. Oh, just a, a Ninja Turtle plug for the episode. Because I really think the new ones are quite outstanding, and they do seem to have a charm to them that the 25th anniversary Joes have. Hmm. So I might be putting some of my money towards them. Who's making Definitely. them? Do you know? Playmates. Yeah, yeah, no. Playmates. The Is original it? guys. Okay. You better see the Playmates, dude. It's bigger than a small child. Cool. Okay. It's like this whole sewer system. Yeah, it, it's it's really, really impressive. It's about $100, $112 at the pre-order price on BBTS. And they also have a potty wagon. 
and I'm just trying to determine if the party wagon is for the smaller scale turtles or if it's for the bigger turtles, which are the re-release of the original line with better articulation Ooh. and sculpting and so on. Well, check the price so, point. If it's for a smaller scale, it wouldn't come in at like over $50. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Because that would be a really cool van. I mean, I, I can justify buying most things, but that's something I do want. I think it'll be very cool. Whether I integrate it into my Joe line or not, it is something I do want. Nowadays, we are spoiled for choice. The focus has definitely shifted to the 3 and 3 quarter or 4 inch scale, the 1 to 118 scale. And that, that means it's playground for someone in my position who's always wanted a Wolverine no. able to go toe-to-toe with Snake Eyes or an Iron yeah. Man who can fight Snake Armors or a Deadpool that can fight Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow Ah, uh, they would carve him up, man what? No doubt in my mind They can carve as much as they want It's got a healing factor, he'd be fine Rob always yeah, errs on the side of superhero <laughs> <laughs> I like I'll to be... think that, that superheroes aren't really that super or impervious. Oh. That a really trained soldier could best them on an equal footing. Well, that's what they try to prove with the Punisher comics. Except they sent him to space. So, <laughs> disbelief. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, I got a Thor figure from that new Marvel line. And it's Thor based on the design of him from Straczynski's run. Oh, that's very cool. And he is so cool. And it's such a beefy figure. He's quite imposing. I mean, he's quite... A big guy, and it's great because he can look Road Pig in the eye, which is kind of cool. Whereas he um, dwarfs some of the other figures, but he's kind of in scale because you know he's made it that one to eighteen scale, and mm. I just dig it. And if I liked more Marvel superheroes, I might get into more of that line. But there's something about the hip joints that it's it's a hit or miss for me. But yeah, that was one figure I had to have. I, I really dug that Thor, and I don't like integrate him t- uh, into a lot of the posing of my G.I. Joes on the shelf time, but he's a very cool toy. <laughs> and you'll hold down a stack of papers like no other action figure can, my friend. That's a <laughs> lot of plastic on that guy. You know it, right? You know, I mean, he fell off the shelf and he didn't break, <laughs> but my floor looks a little bit worse for wear. No doubt, man. Also, just something recently as well, before we get too far into this topic, I recently got Masterpiece Transformers. I got Megatron and Optimus. And although they're not completely in scale, they do look very cool when surrounded by a bunch of Joes. Mm. And it kind of brought a lot of memories back, which is why I actually um, thought of this topic, because I had a whole bunch of my Joes facing off Optimus once again. And then I have that G.I. Joe vs. Transformers comic, which is very cool. So I posed Snake Guys on top of Optimus with his like, sword behind his neck, and it was cool. Oh, Reminds me but of the uh, custom Optimus Prime Rolling Thunder smash-up. My goodness, that yes. thing is, is a thing of beauty. Indeed. It would cost the earth ra- to produce that, it. And that raven, that, that raven that that guy did with Unicron. He like smashed up Unicron and the night raven together. And fully transformable. Oh my goodness. My heart bleeds for toys like that. Oh. Why does Hasbro, and this is a topic I'd like to get into maybe on the next episode, but why does Hasbro never consider stuff like that? They've given us a Starscream color scheme for a Sky Striker, and in a very cool fashion, they've also given us a little Megatron, you know, as a gun for Cobra Commander. But why have they never, like, gone, hey, we've made Star Wars Transformers, which have absolutely no place in the world, instead of making a transformable Hiss or a transformable Vamp? Or something. You know, why has this never, ever, like, come out? I really don't have an answer for you, Paul, because my mind immediately starts thinking budget. But no, to make make a vamp transform and to make a hiss transform, those are manageable-sized vehicles. And they could make them transform without upping the price point too much. And they will net both Transformers fans and G.I. Joe fans alike, and of course kids who are into both toy lines, or each separately, and it kind of enhances a G.I. Joe toy because it can transform, and it enhances a Transformer toy because G.I. Joe designs are amazing. (laughs) I mean, I would much rather get a vehicle that looks like a his tank than something that looks like a pickup truck. Yeah. It's a no-brainer. Win-win. Exactly. Have any of you guys got anything else to add for the... Oh, I, I think I have quite a bit, really. I mean, t- talking about uh, toy lines that I used to integrate with G.I. Joe, 
Well, where to begin? We touched on the core, we touched on Power Team Elite, we touched on Star Wars. Lately, as I say, we're spoiled for choice and we've got the Chap May vehicles as well. Ah. Like they do a Chinook, they do an Osprey, they do a transport plane, which I haven't seen yet. I'd really like to get my hands on one, but I'm not prepared to have it shipped here. I think either we'll get it locally or I'll go overseas and, and... hopefully discover it but yeah like Microman as well put out some amazing stuff like they did the scope dogs which are perfect they are Joe scale mecha they're not unmanageably large Mm. yeah they're very easy to play with if you were to get an in scale Gundam or Veritech or Metal Gear Rex (laughs) you're gonna have trouble getting that thing through the doorway yeah, that's true. Uh, Joe Scale Metal Gear Rex, mind blown. Yeah, it but would be human size. <laughs> just hunched over. Cool. Wow. I'm just processing that right now. Okay. <laughs> Process away, my friend. I mean, the thing was large enough for both snakes, liquid and solid, to have a fist fight on top of it. That said, the sideshow version looks to be killer. It's large. Wait until September, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait until I visit you sometime after September. Dude. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> okay, should we get into something Sweet. a little different? Let's have a little change of pace. Okay, We're going to talk change? Larry Harmer. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, most Yajo fans would call me a blasphemer for saying this, but not everything that Harmer exposed to us was gold. Or is it? I'm playing devil's advocate right now. I can imagine being Larry Harmer in the early days of the G.I. Joe line, and he would come into work, and, you know, somebody would show him, a, I don't know, like a, the Rolling Thunder, and he would have to come up with stuff for that. And that would be a good day at work. And then you would get days where you'd come into work, and somebody would show you Raptor, and he would be like, I'm going to have a bad day. I think in a lot of ways, some of the stuff that came out of Hasbro as cool, characters like... Uh, Crystal Ball and, and Raptor I think were, were definite indicators that if you got to work and you were Larry Hammer and you saw these figures you'd be like wow I'm going to have a bad day because i got to make this guy credible and to Larry Hammer's credit he did actually make those characters fairly credible and then in the comic book would actually extrapolate on that and turn him into a bit of a sniveling kind of coward as seen in the one book when Cobra Commander is killed and, and that was really well done and I think as somebody who's a creative myself, to come up with an idea like that with a character that just is just he's so far away from what he actually is in the comic books, I, I I take my hat off to somebody like Larry Homer because that kind of thing's difficult to do, especially in a line like GI Joe or in the X Men, which he did a lot of work for. You're surrounded by characters that are just cool, so your your day job is all about okay, well, I gotta make these characters really cool, but I don't want to make them too cool because then they're not really characters anymore; they superheroes. So well, that's what that's I want to say about Raptor. Mm. I can imagine the designer wanting to concoct a kind of a superhero cobra agent who could fly and had the ability to summon killer birds of prey to attack <laughs> his enemies. And when Homer like got... a guy that works in a pet shop that takes too many drugs. <laughs> well, dude, sometimes one wonders what the creatives at Hasbro were thinking when they were cooking up these sculpts. But then it lands on Homer's desk, he gets a mock-up of the figure, he gets the card art, and all of a sudden he's like, guys, are you joking? Are you smoking reefer? I mean, there's no way I can work this into the plausible reality that I've created around these characters. I've created a modern military unit and a very real-world threat for them to fight. So I'm going to not make this guy a flying superhero... I'm going to make him an accountant who has a penchant for falconry. <laughs> and that's where I think his brilliance comes through. I mean, I, we can wax lyrical about, you know, the Arashikage and the whole ninja thing. Sorry, just before you, you jump on the ninjas, <laughs> I, I just want to close the, 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 the chapter on Raptor. <laughs> the chapter on Raptor. I need to say all that. And... When he's introduced to Cobra Commander initially in, in one of the 50s, 
Cobra Commander bursts out laughing. He thinks that this is the biggest joke. Like, how can this guy possibly be on the payroll of Cobra? He's a lunatic. He's dressed up like a raptor. <laughs> so he becomes the butt of the joke. And that is one of many examples of Larry Harmer taking lemons and making lemonade. That's the thing that I think is really cool. I think a lesser creator, well, when I say lesser creator, somebody that was just a bit more off the wall would try to integrate Raptor as this, like, believable character. Homer as a creator is just really good at not overemphasizing the obvious in any stuff, which is one thing I've, I've liked about him uh, ever since I actually learned of his name and who he was and what he did. And he has a subtlety in his work that does emphasize that. It does take away from the obvious. Yes, Snake Eyes is a ninja, but he knows when to play the ninja angle and when to pull back. What are your thoughts, guys? Well, I would say that you probably haven't read on into the later run of the Marvel oh, the comics. Ninja. Yeah, but I don't even think Hummer and all of his awesomeness, the guy tried his best. Well, you didn't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind was blowing. It was obvious that the ninjas sold very well with kids, and so... Once again, I, I'd like to think that it was Hasbro pulling the strings, saying, we need more stories that feature the Ninja Force. But he, I mean, he, he enjoys ninjas, though. I mean, his favorite character, he said, is Snake Eyes. And um, he even did a comic book series called The Nth Man, who was kind of like a ninja in a way. Sure. So, and he's very influenced by Eastern, Eastern philosophy and other stuff I think I've read. So I think ninjas, they weren't pushing that on him. He was happy. He was like, hey, give me ninjas. Well, I mean, I suppose we'd have to hear it from the man himself, but yeah. I think I, th I think initially the adding the ninja angle to something like GI Joe was was something that he put in there because it's something he's familiar with because he's a martial artist, mm. and he put it in there quite happily. I think the the thing is he was a victim of his own uh, success there mm -hmm. because eventually the ninja thing became very cool, and as Steve mentioned earlier, it became very popular with kids, and I think by that point, Homer was like. Okay, I'm in deep, <laughs> you know, and that's where I think Hasbro had a lot of influence. Where they were like, "No, no, more neon green." That Zartan's clearly not neon green enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, totally. On that point, I mean, making Firefly the faceless master of the Arashikage clan. Mm. Yeah. Uh, some fans <laughs> criticize the later Real American Hero run as being like a six degrees of separation from Snake Eyes family tree <laughs> <laughs> title. It was all a case of tying things in with the Arashikage and, and finding the connections between Snake Eyes and everyone else from his past who keep you mean the devil, recurring. You mean the, the Devil's Due run, right? Oh, did I do that in Devil's Due as well? Well, no, the thing I was actually the referring Due to has Marvel. got a lot of... I mean, it's got Kamakura for crying out loud. Yeah, Kamakura, Firefly... All of the G.I. Joe ninjas, the red ninjas, everyone seemed to have a, a link to Snake Eyes. Which, in many respects, was Harmer trying to write for a protagonist. Ah. Every other title he's worked on has been a single protagonist and the world that is populated with supporting characters. In G.I. Yeah, Joe, he had hundreds of toys that were characters that needed to be addressed and was just impossible. So... Toward the end, I guess he dialed it back to a very much Snake Eyes' story. Yeah. The G.I. Joe story through the eyes of Snake Eyes. That's very possible. I mean, I think it also takes a lot of personal experience with a diverse group of people. What I mean by that is, I think he had a military career, and he's also considered as a weapon specialist. We see that in the file cards, and that was one of the coolest things about the file cards. You've got characters that are flawed. You've got somebody like Flint, who is an absolute specialist, he's a great tactician, but he's, he's arrogant. And they don't need to go too far into Flint's character, but they go in enough for you to realize that this guy, yeah, he is a bit, he is a bit high on his own stuff. Hummer does that really well uh, with characters, uh, and guys like Hawk, I mean, you have a, a, an immense respect for Hawk throughout the line, because he's just such a great leader, he's quite humble, smart, you know, he's also willing to get down and dirty, uh, with the crew against Cobra on the front lines. He's not somebody who holds back. These are things where I think if other writers had taken it, they would have tried to make everybody a superhero. Everybody would be this gung-ho character. You wouldn't be able to say who your favorite character was because they would be shadows of each other. Whereas 
you got a whole bunch of guys that are different. Though a lot of them don't get a lot of screen time in the comics, mostly because I think it is difficult to write 50,000 characters. It's good to focus on the guys that you like or that you think are strong sellers in the book and things like that. You know, you have to you have to keep it all in perspective. But what's his name? What's that? The driver of the Rolling Thunder called again? Armadillo. Armadillo. I mean, like, Armadillo, you got me to read his file card. I mean, the guy <laughs> is a superhero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can do nothing wrong. But this point was, wrong. was touched on in uh, What's on Joe Mind, an interview with Laurie Harmer that, that we've all listened to. It transpired that they kept firing him from file card duty and hiring Hasbro employees to write the cards. And when they wrote these cards, they just wrote very skilled military personnel that had no flaws, no weaknesses. Exactly. And there were quite a few exclamation marks in those cards uh, that's a yep. dead ringer. If you see a lot of More exclamation... More crime. But, Steve, Rob, something bad. Come, like, <laughs> find it in the deep, dark recesses of your, your soul. I know. Find something bad. That was kind of what we wanted to expose in this podcast. And in our research, we just came up with things that we absolutely love about Homer. Things that he did right. But uh, Rob might, in the blackness of his heart, be able to find something to critique Larry Harmer on. I just think people revere him a bit too much. I don't think he even reveres himself that much. Because I think at the time, doing G.I. Joe was just another job. He was writing characters, he was having a cool time with it. Like, he's been quoted saying, there are no characters I wouldn't write if somebody were paying me. I think, yeah, if he had a chance, he he, he would love to write anything. He just loves the process of creating. And of just writing stuff, interesting characters, and focusing on characterization above sort of long-term plot ideas. That's probably why there are such crazy things that happen in J.I. Joe, that he wasn't yeah, focused on getting very far. In another interview on um, Comic Book Resources, he was asked, how far ahead did you plot out storylines for G.I. Joe when you were writing the series? And he answered, uh, about two or three pages at the most. So he wasn't focused on these long-term things. He just wanted to get the characters right. And I think that's true. The characters are amazing. You just really enjoy what's going on with them. And You raise an interesting point, and, and I must say it's my criticism as well, though I have trouble even calling it a criticism, is that Larry Harmer, he was never a fanboy of this stuff. I mean, he penned it. He's got a certain level of modesty about it. Mm. And he never went gaga about it. Like, he's got a professional distance from G.I. Joe that none of us share. For us, this is a hobby. This is our absolute love. And to know that the man who started it all, who wrote the aspects of it that we love so much, can be quite so removed from it and, and not be swept up in it. I don't know. It's, it, it's a bit reflective on, on us. That's I feel almost I mean, foolish. Like, I hang on every single word that the man wrote, and yet for him, it's on paper and then out of sight, out of mind. A, a great uh, measure of your, your own personal success is to not carry on about the things that you have done. So, for example, if you were the guy who came up with the original 13 and the bulk of the Joe's file cards, those are things you did a long time ago, and... I think it's kind of cool that he doesn't walk around waving the flag of, oh, I made G.I. Joe, I made it cool. No, like you said, there's a professional distance there from it, and there's a humility there that I respect as a creator as well. As Larry Thomas, file cards were a huge inspiration to me as an artist. I had a lot of trouble trying to draw the pictures on the actual packaging art, but when I used to read the, the file cards, it used to give me these ideas. I used to make my own G.I. Joes, I used to make my own file cards, I used to come up with my own characters. And that formed the basis of my creative career now. I have to thank the man for that. I mean, if I ever meet him in person, that's the thing I will probably tell him. That's what he did that meant a lot to me, in some ways more so than G.I. Joe. But if I have to dig into the dark recesses of my soul, I will say that Larry Hummer has made two little mishaps that I don't really like. Bucky O'Hara is not something I like. It got uh, a cartoon, it had the comic book. I understand where it's coming from. I've never really liked it, and I've never really got it. There's a huge fan base for Bucky O'Hara somewhere out there. I'm not part of it. And I think it's also my fault as a a G.I. Joe fan and being very wrapped up 
in the G.I. Joe thing that when the cartoon was on, I didn't even know Larry Hammer did it or that it was based on something that Larry Hammer made. I just saw it and I was like, oh, it's not kind of what I'm into. So I, can't, I missed the beat there completely. And yet, Paul, that was very close to his heart. That's kind of what he wanted to do for ages. Yeah. Huh. G.I. Joe was a stopgap for that. Yeah, and I mean, I think I've also seen in interviews, yeah, he often is not involved in the things that come out of his writing. Like, he'll write the series, and the cartoons, he doesn't watch them. He isn't actually involved in them. I mean, I think I've seen quotes from him where he says, yeah, I've never actually ever watched a cartoon episode of the G.I. Joe. Like, there was this, this hectic conflict between the cartoonists thinking they're better than the comic writers, and the comic writers think they're better than the cartoonists. And there's just this, yeah. this divide between the two. So you can't hold cartoons against him, I think. I don't know. It boggles the mind to think that while you are currently writing for characters that you created, a rival creative team in a different medium is writing for those same characters yeah. and developing them in different directions. But at the same time, they weren't really his characters. He understood that, the, that he was licensed to write these characters for Hasbro. They were always Hasbro's characters. But they were pieces of his own mind. They were pieces of his own experience. He based these characters of people that he met. And that became his way of filing everyone. and Mortalizing them in a way as well. Absolutely. Gauging how they would react in a certain situation. He asked himself, how would Harry react? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is me thinking Harmer style. (laughs) But yeah, it, it just it's mind-boggling to think that uh, at the same time his characters are being used and abused and developed or not developed. I mean, I can't say there was a great deal of character development happening in the cartoon. Every time they, they started a new episode, they started again from a default position. They started again from a base level. Yeah, very few um, episodes in the cartoon actually link with each other. Some fun facts about the animated series, though. J. Michael Straczynski, which uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the name, but yeah, he's one of my on favorite fire. comic writers and one of my favorite writers in general. The man's fantastic, having penned stuff like Midnight Nation, having done one of the best Amazing Spider-Man runs, and most recently one of the best Thor runs. Yeah, uh, He also uh, wrote the majority of the Ghostbusters cartoon, which if you take the time to, to watch it, is actually very well written within the confines of its universe. I mean, he, he threw in things like Cthulhu, which... <laughs> I'm sure it caused a lot of controversy around when it came out, because uh, <laughs> Cthulhu is considered cultish, mm. obviously, which links to H.P. Lovecraft. But Straczynski wrote for that comic book. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bruce Tim. Bruce Tim is a guy that did the Batman animated series. Yes. The Batman animated series. The cool um, one that I used to watch after cricket practice. Oh, okay. yes. Yes. Such an awesome show. Mm. One of my favorite shows, period, cartoon or otherwise. Bruce Tim was the, one of the major creative forces behind that line. And yes, he also worked on G.I. Joe for an ep or two, and also did do some of the cells and whatever for G.I. Joe. A few other guys, like popular, uh, famous guys, uh, whose names I can't think of right now, have come out of that cartoon. But it's a complete creative shift from, from the comic book. And as South Africans, we were very lucky that we had the comic book or in a higher dose than we had the cartoon. Because the G.I. Joe cartoon was, was cool, but... It was the comic book that created the missile, so when I watched the cartoon, my brain filled in everything that I had learned from the comic books mm. into those characters. So the cartoon was always a little bit goofy, because as an 11-year-old, I was like, her, her, this is made for kids, her, her. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you just look at the Giorgio animated film, I mean, that's very kiddish, I think. But I love it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's okay, but then you have Cobra Law, and it just becomes... Ridiculous. I don't know. That's not, that's definitely not Harmer. I mean, if he if he was watching that, he would have been like, nah, nah, thanks. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I know that Larry Harmer suffered a lot of uh, criticism uh, when the G.I. Joe film came out, uh, The Rise of Cobra, because he liked it. Mm. I think when he said he liked it, and he liked certain elements to it. Yeah, he's been quoted as saying he liked, he said it was fun to watch, and he liked the characters, and he, and to him it made sense. Bearing in mind he was also on the payroll of this particular production and acted as an advisor to it. So he's not exactly at liberty. He's not not at liberty to say, oh, I thought it was a piece of shit. (laughs) I completely hated it. Okay. And this is a a criticism that I have of Harmer. 
he says that they nailed the characters. And when asked, well, what characters did they nail, he kind of gets as far as Scarlet and, and, and then peters out. Now, yeah, Scarlet had red hair. She also had a crossbow. I'm not really seeing how they could go wrong with Scarlet. I mean, the imagery is all there. There was no time for characterization. Oh, and the fact that she gave Ripcord the cold shoulder. Yeah, okay, that was something that Scarlet would do in my eyes. And there was also a little... Yeah, overachiever, sure. But then, you know, Scarlet does not a complete Joe team make. Okay. Okay, they nailed Snake Eyes because he dressed in black, had swords and didn't say anything. But then, keep expanding that idea. And you've got a very young Duke, not terribly experienced, but tough as nails. That wasn't how Hama initially penned Duke. Uh-huh. You had this roadblock character who <laughs> came from... Oh no, Heavy Duty, sorry, was his Yeah, Heavy Duty, uh, yeah, <coughs> Heavy Duty, yeah. Who was not a real American hero by any stretch of the imagination. The altered ethnicities and backgrounds, the fact that G.I. Joe was a global anti-terrorist unit, these are things that they did not nail, things that they ignored from what Hammer had originally created. This is not. PC, I'm sure. Yeah. This was not a specialized uh, anti-terrorist organization. Well, that just comes back to the point that I was making earlier. He's not precious about this stuff. I mean, you, you see in interviews today, and he won't give you specifics and stuff. He's left it in the past. He had fun at the time, mate, writing his characters. And, and then he's he moved on. He defended. He defended the way the characters were portrayed in Rise of Cobra. He just said he liked the way the portrayals. He thought it was interesting. I think. Did he really say that he thought it was true? Absolutely. Just like the Baroness was well, like to Duke's a lover. concept of, of the characters, <laughs> I think. No, I think Rise of Cobra, we can all agree that, by and large, the film was not true to anything from the G.I. Joe mythos. The well, writers were on... Want to go in there, but yeah. Not <laughs> even Sigma-6, buddy. Not even. Where was my yeah, r- wise-cracking little tunnel rat fella? Come on. <laughs> It should have been. And a robot but, dog. <laughs> <laughs> there was a ro- robot dog in Sigma 6? I think so. I think it defused a bomb by peeing on it. Yeah. Sigma 6. Oh, a chapter well, best left forgotten. That. I've got the, the Snake Eyes declassified. So in that he says he loves the fact that he's got characters and that people will take those characters to places he would never have thought of. And that even though he in the book it might not be his take on Snake Eyes' sort of declassified origin. It is a take, and he thinks that it's great that these are characters that have grown within pop culture and that they are writers that are brave enough to try and put their own spin on things as opposed to just following the laws that he set. And, yeah, I, I think it takes quite a lot of balls to say something like that as well because you can become quite precious over things that you've worked on I've seen it a lot in the industry. I mean, when you ask somebody to change something on a website, they can get very, very specific about it. No, but it's there because it's a focal point. And then you like ask them to change it, and then later on, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, we see that was wrong. Frustrations um, at work, it's not, Paul. It's not, it's not necessarily that things are wrong. It's just that there's degrees of right when it comes to things like design and uh, drawing, creating artwork for a commercial industry. He's got characters, and he's set down these rules, uh, a lot of the, a lot of us have lived with those rules, and a lot of creators, uh, and especially Devil's Due, they try to break the mold, but then at the same time they fell back into a lot of the old concepts, mostly because I think they were strong-armed by fans, to do those things. At the end of the day, what ended up happening is that fans didn't really like the majority of what came out of Devil's Due. I think the only thing I really liked that came out of Devil's Due was that um, Snake Eyes Declassified. I thought that was a very interesting take. I don't take it as canon, but I think it's a very interesting look at uh, what could have been. And I think what Larry Hammer had to say there was quite apt for the title. It was good to see somebody taking characters that he had created or at least breathed life into. It was good to see people taking them in their own direction. And, and with the film, you know, that's the kind of attitude I had when I walked into the cinema that day, when I watched the film, was this is not going to be the G.I. Joe that I know. This is going to be the Hollywood-approved G.I. Joe 
And then only to later find out when the credits rolled that that was totally not the G.I. Joe I grew up with. <laughs> well, at least they did something nice with the credits. I, I breathed a sigh yeah, of relief. And those are beautiful. Those are beautiful credits. <laughs> yeah, man. I have to like, agree. No step and uh, yes, danger, that's, that's caution. So true to the, to the toy line. I love that. That was the truest moment in the entire film, the credits. Another big thing uh, as well is... I, I don't know if you guys have um, got the DVD for that Rise of Cobra or the Blu-ray. That's never going to happen. <laughs> I have them. I know. Shame on are. you. Shame on you. How can you support that? I thought your whole thing was if you like something, you'll support it to try and get other people to like it and support it. If you support if that, he really likes that movie. He just really wants everyone to watch it. Do you want more like them, Paul? Just like no, Rise I of Cobra. But this, I didn't support it when it came out. I waited for it to end up at the bargain bin, which means that it's already been written off, that the shop will not order it again. Okay, you're you forgiven. So you're it forgiven. doesn't perpetuate the horror that is Rise of Cobra. <laughs> but, but in the making of, there's something that's quite that, that actually struck me as really bizarre. Paramount Pictures. Yes, Paramount, you dog originally did not want Snake Eyes in the film. They did not want the most pivotal characters in G.I. Joe in the film. Hmm. When they showed it to test audiences, they actually got in the test audience to write down who their favorite characters were, or at least to tick uh, on a box. Uh, there was a Scarlet, you could tick next to that. There was a Duke, you could tick next to that. But nowhere on the form was a Snake Eyes. <laughs> Apparently, something like 80% of that focus group wrote Snake Eyes on the paper <laughs> and, and ticked it. <laughs> and this is where the problem with uh, a film adaptation of anything comes in is that studios don't understand the fan base. They understand their market, which is the movie market, but they don't understand the market that w- that willingly wants to consume their media. They are too busy trying to con us into watching stuff as opposed to making stuff that we really want to watch, which is why I'm still surprised Prometheus is on its way, but we'll get into that some other time. I have some praise for Laurie Harmer oh. that I want to get out of the way. Oh, more since, praise. You know, that's kind of on topic. Uh, <laughs> every now and then I have this little itch in the back of my mind that says, you're a reasonably young, reasonably fit, reasonably directionless man. Why don't you enlist... Even do you want to be a ninja? <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Why don't you enlist in the armed forces? We often get, particularly on online forums, His Tank and the What, stories from real American heroes, or real heroes, soldiers, people out there... Call them soldiers. Heroes is a bad term in the military. Alright, alright. Soldiers, professional soldiers, serving in their nation's armed forces. And I think to myself, because conscription has become a dinosaur in South Africa, there's no longer any kind of compulsory service... I think, hey, there's something missing in my life. Maybe I'll find it by being a soldier. And then I read issue 155, the final issue in the G.I. Joe run, penned by Mr. Harmer. And I think to myself, this is a great deterrent against becoming a soldier. This is an open letter from Snake Eyes to a young man who wants to enlist. A young man from Snake Eyes' past. Surprise, surprise. But in any case, it came at a time when the G.I. Joe unit is being closed down, the pit is being boarded up, and Snake Eyes is kind of reflecting on his journey through the career of a professional soldier, and basically saying that there is no honor or glory in the primary function of a soldier. And that just that just struck me. That, yeah, sure, the primary purpose... A professional soldier is warfare. It gives you pause for thought. And that is a superb piece of writing. No, you're right. I I don't think it it didn't it didn't go down as a classic bit of Harmer writing, but it's certainly something that I like to go back to, quite frankly, because it's an issue that gives Snake Eyes a voice. We don't often get that. When you look at the the arc of the G.I. Joe storyline, and especially, as I say, the later years when it became a six degrees of separation from Snake Eyes kind of drama, Uh you do realize that Homer was actually writing for a single protagonist, and it was Snake Eyes. Uh 
the man least likely, the silent killer, the commando ninja, was the center point for this entire story. And we realize that he's actually anti-war. He is the reluctant hero. And it just trips me out. And in the same breath, one can mention issue 21. The famous, the revered... Oh, the silent issue. The silent issue. And one realizes, in addition to being a bang-up writer, and one who kind of discovered writing almost accidentally as not something that he trained to be, but something that just landed in his lap. He was an excellent artist as well. Issue 21's attention to detail. I mean, he speaks very humbly about how he rendered the backdrops and how he cut corners. But you know what? His backdrops are more detailed and more accurate and more spatially correct than a lot of the other professional artists who worked on the line. It's so an true. excellent piece of artwork that has stood the test of time. And he, I mean, he has been known to say that when he thinks of comics, he thinks of it as a visual art form. And that the focus for him is on the actual, the, the comics, the images and the panels more than it is what people are saying. So I think that's the, the ultimate expression of what he... He's a holistic auteur of, of his work. Mm. Oh, there's a big word. <laughs> you know, it's two big words. <coughs> I mean, it's a known fact that he often sends pages and pages of documents of reference photographs so that he allows his artists enough insight into what Palmer wants, what Palmer is envisioning for the scene. Yeah, which is very cool, coming from an artist's perspective. Sorry, Absolutely. Well, he he writes with an artist's perspective, with a great attention to the the visual style that he wants portrayed, Mm. thinking in pictures. So he really... In more than just the writing, the whole visual style of the G.I. Joe comic book media approach was Hamid. Yeah, there's a bombshell for you. (laughs) Yeah, but you're right, because um, the original of G.I. Joe was originally something that he was working on called the Fury Force. I think Marvel felt that that should be transformed into the G.I. Joe comic. Hang on, hang on. I think the chronology is the other way around, man. Is it? Yeah, Homer had this concept, which he wanted to put into action, Mm. and when they finally approached him at the end of the corridor, or the end of the bullpen, to take on this licensed property, he thought, well, okay, let me just work in some of the elements of Fury Force, like having their, their headquarters in the pit beneath the chaplain assistant's motor pool, and the character archetypes that he was going to use for Fury Force, he just kind of superimposed onto action figures. That's the thing, uh, and I, I love that. That's that's why, in a way, that kind of shows you that he wanted to write that kind of book in the first place. It wasn't like it was just thrust upon it. Which opens but my mind to a hypothetical that I wanted to maybe uh, get your guys' opinion on. Mm-hmm. The Fury Force was envisioned as a anti-terrorist unit led by Nick Fury's son. So who in the Joe line most closely gives you that Nick Fury son vibe? I mean, who who would have been the protagonist had this not been G.I. Joe, but rather Fury Force? Would it have been uh, Hawk or Duke? I, I think uh, somebody like Fury would sire a son like Flint, actually. <laughs> uh, great military tactician, but very arrogant. You know, that kind of very cocksure. And that's the kind of character I think would have been Fury's son, personally. But well, it's Flint, what, it, Flint would have then had a, a greater lion's share of... Of the earlier books, which is true. I mean, the comic was book... He wasn't one of the, was he one of the original 13? Sorry, I think. He uh, wasn't one of the original 13, and he didn't really get much of a share of the action, actually. Well, then it would probably be either Hawk or Snake Eyes. I mean, they're the two main people, or what? Like Grant? I mean, Grant wasn't that well featured in the early comics, was he? Look, if we were dealing with a character like Nick Fury's son, who would then be the focal point of the comic book, it would be a no-brainer. Homer would have written as detailed a backstory as he wrote for Snake Eyes. He would have written for that character. Exactly. No. Actually, I'm going to take that back. By virtue virtue of being Nick Fury's son, his backstory is pretty plain as day. You might still have to have this mysterious other character on the team. 
who has the interesting flashback storyline. Yeah, he's the Han Solo to Luke Skywalker. Like, Snake Eyes is the Han Solo of the G.I.J. team. Guys, in order to save me massive amounts of editing, shall we wrap it up? Yeah, I figured we could wrap it up with what is your favorite Larry Hammer issue that comes to mind right now? And we can be quick about it. Steve, go. Well, it's a toss-up between issue 155 and issue 21. So I'm going to go with issue 21. It is famous. It is just uh, unmistakable. And, as I say, a complete auteur issue. Larry Harmer penciled it and scripted it. No one had to letter it. But the way the storytelling unfolds, it's just a thing of beauty. And the visual style, it's very filmic. But yeah, it was a no-brainer for me. How about you, Paul? I have two. I really love the issue where the Snake Eyes and Scarlet go to go and save Stalker and uh, Snow Job. Escape. Quick uh, kick. Snow Job. Is it Snow Job? Yeah. Snow Job. Quick kick. Yeah, and Stalker. I love that issue. I love the the take on it. It was very like the build-up was there. You were kind of like somebody has to save these Joes. There was this subtle political intrigue that they were trying to throw in there, and then. Eventually you had the, the rescue team and they just came out and took care of business in the coolest way. It was very ninja. It was good to, to see the, the Joes working as silent operatives in a, in a big way, you know. Also, the issue wasn't scared of killing people in the panel, uh, which is very cool. It was a little off-panel, but still, they, they killed guys. It was. I'm not saying killing is the important thing, but I mean, if you're dealing with situations like that that are fairly realistic, you know, people are going to die. And another, which is when Zartan is confronted by the Blind Master. Mm. And Zartan actually kills him because he can't believe that the Blind Master would forgive him, and that it's a trap. And he tries to atone for his sins by taking the role of the Blind Master. I thought that was really, really awesome. Um, it's always struck with me. I, I love the message there that bad things happen. Yes, somebody did do something that is really heinous by killing their master. But things can be forgiven. Things can be resolved. You know, people can learn from their mistakes and grow. That was issue and 91, was, by the way. Issue 91. That, that 91. There yeah. you go. Yeah, I can never remember issue names like you do. <laughs> well, yeah, it sticks in my mind because I, I was just a bit put off by the pencils on it. Yeah, the artwork, I think it was because it was doing the, the sort of like, okay, G.I. Joe issues have to be out on time. So pencilers were really pushed to get stuff out there very quickly. I read it most recently in the graphic novel form, and those graphic novels have been retouched, and I don't love how they've retouched them, to be honest. So it didn't stand out as much as it could, but the writing is what really got me, you know, and, and I thought I thought he did that really well. And Rob? I have to agree, issue 21. I just think he completely just surprises you at the end there with that sort of revelation that Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes are related in some way. And it's just the action, yeah. It's just so suspenseful. It's so it's just so interesting to look at, and I really I really enjoy that. And I, I love that it's all about the images. I mean, I've read other silent issues, in other yeah. like I've read an X Men one as well, and that usually gets me when you can actually just bring everything across just using the visual form, and, and I like that a lot. Well, in issue twenty one, I love how cold it feels. Mm. Like it's very cold. You can actually feel it's cold air, and it's you know, you can hear water drops and, and yeah, things like that. You can you know, hear all of that, but yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's on the on the page. Yeah, I like that. It was very cool. And my least favorite Larry Hummer issue, and I think <laughs> you guys are going to share share this with me, it's not in the original line, because I've yet to find a, a, a comic in the original line that offends me so much for me to call it the worst issue, but <laughs> I really hate the comic book two-packs comics. Yeah. It's very hard to believe Larry Hummer wrote those. Well, perhaps... In his defense, he didn't... So far away from those. No, but it could be he's just been so far, so long away from the characters that it's just... Yeah, he was going through the motions. He's not connected to those people that he used to know. He needs an opportunity to kind of reacquaint himself. And he wasn't really afforded that with those comic packs. So what did he yeah. do? He kind of glossed over their file cards and tried to inject that into the comics as much as possible. And it was quite superficial. It was quite an obvious move. For instance, yeah. I mean, there was a, a comic book featuring uh, Shockwave 
and Destro with a flight suit. <laughs> and of course, Shockwave's only real notable characteristic on his file card, despite the fact that he was from Detroit SWAT, the fact that he's a choir boy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And Larry Homer worked that in there. She horned it in there, yeah. 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 I felt as That's if I felt as if he was writing Beachhead, but then with Shockwave's file card. So you had this jungle environment, which a SWAT specialist is rather out of depth in, and then dropping the fact that he is a pretty decent tenor when his voice is in shape. I mean, it just, <laughs> yeah, it was quite obvious that he hadn't um, really gotten himself back into the saddle. Yeah, and with that, I think Storm Shadow wants to say some words as we close the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode five of G.I. Joe We hope we have not offended you too much. Also, read Storm Shadow miniseries by Larry Harmer. It is actually pretty cool. (laughs) Well, on that word, thank you for joining us. Adios. If you would like to comment on what you've heard, drop us a line either on gijoberg.podbean.com that's G-I-J-O-B-U-R-G dot podbean dot com or a real South African hero dot blogspot dot com. That's a real South African hero with no spaces dot blogspot dot com. And if you really love us, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Yeah.